Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Scarring. Scarring? Okay. The child's life. So, uh, scarring one of his grandchildren's lives by not publicly embracing her. So apparently his son had a baby with a woman. They've fought about it. And he pays for the, uh, for the baby, but he has not embraced the child. So Maureen Dowd is saying it's bad for the child that the president has not acknowledged her. So I kind of think, well, that's a, she should be fetching at the son, whose baby it is. You, it's not the president's baby. So I don't know what you think, but I'm throwing it out there. You throw it out there, Whoopi Goldberg. You throw it out there all you want. Why is Maureen Dowd of the New York Times saying to Joe Biden, why are you not talking about your granddaughter? Why are you hiding this child? Whoopi Goldberg is offended that Maureen Dowd would even have the conversation. Why in the world should he have to talk about it? Anna Navarro? Yes, like, the, the reason that's happening is because the right wing, who again is weaponizing everything related to Hunter, keeps asking, so how many children do you have, Mr. No, it's grandchildren do you have? It's written speeches well, he delivered. Maybe Maureen Dowd should find something else to write about. Yeah, write about that. something else. I mean, they I'm sorry, you know. Nah, we're going to write about this. And the reason it's being written about, the reason it's being talked about, is the same exact reason people are disgusted by cocaine in the White House. You telling me that this White House, this president can't stand up and say it's wrong? You're going to tell me that for any issue Hunter Biden is having, he doesn't have enough humanity to say, that's my granddaughter, bring her over here. Visit her quietly? That's the conversation. If the ladies of the view want to pretend that it doesn't matter, okay, I guess it doesn't matter when men have children out of wedlock and don't want to be around the kid. Oh, those men are horrible. But Hunter Biden, why are we talking about this? Why is this a conversation? I mean, everybody has kind of figured out that this is a bad, bad look. And the answer is shame on Republicans for taking advantage of it. You know, this is this is a story that is sad and disturbing on so many levels. Um, Yes, it is political for a couple of reasons. Um, Number one, yes, Republicans are using it and are going to take advantage of it in a way that is unfortunate and inappropriate. But the reason they are doing that is because and able to do that is because of the brand and the kind of person that we all know and believe Joe Biden to be because it's who he says he is. Joe Biden says that he is a family man. He's a folksy man. He's a man who cares. But when it comes down to it, he doesn't recognize that he has a granddaughter that exists. AIDS state, he has six grandchildren, not seven, but he has seven grandchildren. So his son's a screw-up. He's a druggie. Whatever you want to call Hunter Biden is fine by me. 
Grandkid didn't do anything wrong. Why in the world would he not would she not be recognized? This isn't Republicans taking advantage of it. This is noticing the issue. And you, you leftists, don't get to lecture to America because if Trump had the grandkid that uh, wasn't talked about, it would be all you talked about. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Good to be back in the chair. 833-GOT-TONY is the number. 833-468-8669. And I can already hear the detractors who listen to the show and leave the messages and the emails. Oh, you're not talking about serious things. Oh, you're being ridiculous. Oh, no. Oh, no, I'm talking about the race for president, and it all matters. Ain't my problem that you don't like it. Too bad. As uh, the kids would say, suck it up, buttercup. Hold on, wait. This just in. This just in. The kids don't say that at all. The kid, The kids have actually never said that before. Uh, that is that's something you would get on a T-shirt when you're visiting Great Adventure or something like that, which is a uh, Six Flags in New Jersey when I was a kid. Jackson, New Jersey. A good time. America notices... That Joe Biden talks a big game, but doesn't act the big game. That Joe Biden is all about being good and being decent, but that's not how he plays. There was a report from, I think it was the the, the New York Post, referred to him as Old Yeller. Because the story was that he screams a lot at his aides. And oh, if he's not screaming at you... uh. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't love you. I don't know if that's true or, or, or not, but does he scream? Yeah, I'm sure that he does. But the bigger story here is that Biden has always tried to portray himself as the grandfather. And certainly he has the moments he can do that. But when he's yelling at this one and yelling at that one, we've got, we've gone through this before. He isn't a decent dude. He isn't a good dude. He's a jerk. He's a pompous ass. That's what he is. And I was actually on on Fox over the weekend. By the way, don't ask me what's going on with Fox. Hell if I know. I don't I I am not sure what the network is doing. They are it seems de- it seems obvious to me and I, I think to all of us they're trying to catch their footing on some things. I don't think they were prepared for letting go of Tucker to be as bad as it was and they had to be prepared that it was going to be bad, right? It's freaking Tucker. Tucker Carlson. They didn't they didn't know it would be this bad. They didn't know that Jesse Waters would take hits. I think even Jesse is surprised and I don't think he deserves them. Right? Of course Jesse Waters is going to do the show. They move him into the time slot. He's going to be like, okay, I'm going to go be the guy in the time slot. Of course. You, you try and, you know, meet the moment. Of course you do. And you try and turn some people around and keep the audience you have and slowly grow it. But, man, they, it's, it's so obvious. And, and the, the ratings issues and everything else is very real. But when Lawrence Jones, who I've known for years, says, come on the show, I'm coming on the show. Heck, if Fox offered me a show uh, tomorrow, uh, as long as I could stay in Indianapolis, I would do the show. Can't deny that Fox still has potency and power. And by the way, you want it to. You just want it to be better. 
You want them to be better at it. You don't want them to, to give in. You don't want them to kowtow. You don't want the wokeness. You don't want those things. You want the network providing an argument that is counter to the CNN, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, CBS argument. You need it's the more the merrier. They just got to be, you know, engaged in actual news and just not going about things the way CNN does. But on this conversation about the cocaine, I'm, I, it's it's myself, it's Lawrence Jones, the host, it's Kevin Walling, who's a Democrat, who's a nice dude. He's just, man, he was involved in a lot of spin here. Listening to Kevin Walling talk about Joe Biden's take on cocaine and on drugs, and then you hear my response, and then you hear his spin, uh, and, and Lawrence is just just disgust with it all. Listen to this. This was Kevin Walling, the Democrat, uh, talking about Joe Biden's position on cocaine. Then enter Lawrence Jones. Listen, Lawrence, this is being addressed at the appropriate level, which is the White House press secretary and the national security advisor, which spoke extensively about this this past week, answering dozens of questions from reporters from all different outlets. That's where the process should play out. This president has a very strong opinion uh, that is well documented about drug use uh, in this country. He actually does not support uh, the legalization of marijuana, for example, on the federal level. So this president is very outspoken when it comes to the harms of uh, of drugs in our society. Yeah. He's Taking a very Except compassionate stance son. with his son, and very direct. His, well, Lawrence, well, that's a problem, though. Lawrence, well, that involves fine, a family member. Lawrence, when he was locking up black and no, brown kids what? with the crime bill, but all of a sudden, when it becomes his son, all of a sudden, it needs to be compassion, and he tips the scale with the DOJ. I- Lawrence is involved in a very solid conversation there, and it's one that you're going to hear Kevin respond to, and then I jump in. It is the same thing as regarding the kid. You want to say that Republicans are pouncing, Republicans seizing, you fine, feel free. Who cares? This has to do with the fact that you don't see exactly where the problem is. It is obvious from the the, the cocaine conversation, right? Cocaine being found in the White House. Oh, we don't know whose it was. The hell you don't. You got 9 million cameras. You don't know whose it was. You could track down everybody who was associated with January 6th. You don't know who brought Coke into the White House? Stop it. And then with the kid. Trump had a little dalliance with some porn star hooker. So what? It's it's a personal thing. It's all these people talked about. If if uh, Eric or if Donald Trump Jr. had a, a kid out of wedlock, it'd be all that was discussed. Why doesn't Trump recognize his granddaughter? The double standard here is through the roof, but Kevin refuses to acknowledge where the real story is, which is, you mean Hunter Biden, white guy? He, he don't have to suffer? Regarding the cocaine, some White House white guy doesn't have to suffer. But if you're black and you got cocaine, you're going to jail. This is what this is what Lawrence is discussing. Kevin responds and then I jump in. I just don't understand that. Well, I think we need Especially a lot of compassion got, in our lives. But Everyone But but the reason no, why I bring no, no, this no. to the attention though, Kevin, is because he's already struggling with black voters. Do you think this is gonna play well with them? 
I don't. I, I think black voters are more interested in their economic situation, on crime on the streets, which is why we're hiring thousands of more cops. I think that's what black and brown communities are, are focusing on: security in their communities, drug use in their communities, but also economics in their communities. And that's why this president has a strong record when it comes to black and brown Americans and the talking about the economy, talking about funding police. You Hold can on, yell and Kevin. holler, Tony, and interrupt, but that's what this, these communities are interested in. We only got 30 seconds, Tony. They are also discussing the very conversation of fairness. Maybe you haven't been listening like the rest of America has been listening. It's one set of rules for this group. It's another set of rules for that group. They are arguing that it's based on the color of skin. We're arguing it's based on elitism. You cannot make the claim that Joe Biden has had any level of moral uh, uh, leadership here. And you cannot make the claim that the Secret Service is investigating, so we should be quiet. This happened in our White House. I would, I would love to answers. see Republicans take on discrepancies in sentencing. I would love to see Republicans champion that but it hasn't nice been thing. over the last you couple know, of years well, gentlemen i missed y'all i'm glad he missed us all i don't know maybe i'll be back maybe i won't but that was some incredible spin we went from joe biden not recognizing where america is on this cocaine issue and on this baby issue to republicans should be better in sentencing it's a total disconnect from where we are in real life recognize that there are many Americans who take a look at this cocaine issue and they're like, so the white guy doesn't have an issue, but my cousin does? You don't think that conversation's happening? Allow allow me, if I could, just for a moment. If you don't think that conversation is happening all across the country, you're out of your holy damn mind. People who don't believe that conversation is happening are too stupid to drive. They shouldn't be allowed licenses. Are you nuts? Are we living in a freaking vacuum? Of course that conversation's happening. Of course it is. I argue, as I did on the show, I don't change my arguments. I only change them when something shows that a change is necessary is that there are a lot of people who are breaking this up into a black-white conversation. And I am not saying that they are wrong to do so. I think that if you go the further step, if you really continue the breakdown of the conversation, if you really break down its pieces, what we're having an argument of is elitism. It can happen to the Bidens. Why are you paying attention to it? It happens to the Trumps. It gets 24-hour coverage. It happens to somebody in the Biden circle. Why are you paying attention to it? It happens to you. You should lose your house. You should go to jail for 20 years. An example should be made out of you. Your mugshot should get plastered everywhere. That's the issue. Some schlub living in his mother's basement is involved with child pornography. Rightfully so, he should go to jail for forever. There is nothing more despicable. Jeffrey Epstein is literally traveling with million-dollar players to engage in sex with underage girls. Involved in sex trafficking. We don't have a list of who went to the freaking island. That's the two-tiered justice, baby. That's the elitism versus the rest of us conversation.
And that's why I bring it to there, because that's where this is. So, yeah, the Bidens deserve every bit of derision. And yes, there are a vast number of people desperate to defend Joe Biden who don't even understand where the conversation is on the ground because they don't care about the people on the ground. They think the people on the ground are stupid and they're happy to say so and pat them on the head and be like, look, you can be angry with us, but you got to vote for us because, you know, abortion. Maybe voters of the political left shouldn't buy into that conversation anymore and they should start holding people accountable for treating them like garbage. Just like Joe Biden is treating his granddaughter. I'm Tony Katz. So we've got a hold going on. And this story is interesting. It's it's multi-layered regarding uh, uh, Senator Tommy Tupperville of Alabama and holding up nominations because of an abortion conversation. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. What Tuberville has done, Republican out of Alabama, he has said that the Defense Department is wrong because the Defense Department has decided via Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, they've decided to have the Department, the Defense Department, pay for travel when a service member or a family member has to go out of state to get an abortion or other quote-unquote reproductive care. So, for example, abortion is not allowed in the state of Alabama. So you have a soldier in Alabama, and let's say the soldier is male, and he's got a a wife, and she gets pregnant, and they don't want to have the baby, and she wants an abortion. Can't get one in Alabama. The Defense Department has said, well, we will pay to have that travel and that abortion done. What Tuberville is saying is, no, that's unacceptable. So he is holding up the promotion and the confirmation of of these these officers. So you have the U.S. Marine Corps, for example, without a confirmed leader. It's the first time it's happened in 100 years. The term is, I think it's like a four-year term. I think you're required to leave after four years. So General David Berger was the 38th Commandant of the Marine Corps. But he was uh, put up in 2019. It's now 2023. So that's that. So you have an acting uh, commandant, but they can't actually engage in orders. They can do budget things and other things, but they can't set the tone for the next four years because they're not actually confirmed. And what Tuberville is saying is that this is not what the Defense Department should be doing. Is he right? Is he wrong? Well, a lot of people say, oh, this is going to have an effect on national security. The Marine Corps is still ready to do the job. That, that goes without saying. His argument is interesting. Why is the Marine Corps or any uh, branch of the military paying uh, somebody to go out of state for an abortion? That, that, that shouldn't be allowed. That shouldn't be what we do. The other argument on the other side is, well, look, if you're going to tell soldiers, let's say it's a woman who's pregnant, she can't get an abortion, we're affecting military readiness. It's an interesting conversation about the readiness. If they can travel to another state where it's legal, the question is, should it be paid for? 
by government funds. I think Tuberville is... Well, look, I, I don't think he's the intellectual of the Senate. But I think he's asking a question that at least should get some discussion. Maybe it shouldn't be paid for. Then again, the military... Uh, I shouldn't say the military. The Senate should be working on other things, like exactly how much money is going to go to Ukraine. Noah Rothman of, Co- of uh, National Review is here to break it down. I'm Tony Katz. So we're committed to what's called NATO's open door, uh, to welcoming new members when they're ready for membership and when all of the allies agree uh, to invite them in. Ukraine has made good progress in that direction, and that's going to be reflected at the summit. At the same time, the Ukrainians and others are the first to acknowledge that they have more work to do, uh, continue to reform their military, continuing to deepen democratic reforms. Uh, You're going to see that come out of the summit as well. Uh, The bottom line is this. Here in Vilnius, a really robust package of support for Ukraine political support, practical support, and further progress down the road toward uh, membership in NATO. That right there is Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, saying that, yeah, NATO is ready to welcome in Ukraine, which is strange because part of Russia's rationale for saying it's time to go into Ukraine is really to try and create a situation that prevents Ukraine from joining NATO. I mean, that part of their plan failed miserably, but when it comes to plans, what exactly is the U.S. plan? Exactly how much money is going to be spent? When is success achieved? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. Noah Rothman joins me right now from National Review, writes extensively on the situation in Ukraine and the policy there. Uh, I will get into the... uh, the whole thing about NATO, but I wanted to start in this conversation about cluster munitions. It was Joe Biden saying in, in a interview that America is low on 155 millimeter rounds. Now, whether that's true or, or not true, whether he got it correct or incorrect, a very weird thing uh, to say. And then to make this decision that cluster munitions, something that is not allowed by over 100 countries around the globe, and we're going to be sending those to Ukraine. If I'm in a fight, Noah, if I'm at war, everything is on the table. I don't believe in no, you're not allowed to do this, that, and the other. If I have declared war via the U.S. Congress, everything is on the table. This is certainly not that situation. This is U.S. support of Ukraine. This is different. Talk to me about the cluster munitions, and is this a mountain out of a molehill, or is this a story that requires attention? I think it's a far more complicated issue than sound bites would be able to do it justice. So we are not party to the treaties that ban these weapons. And for a good reason, in part because, well, the reason why they're so frustrating is because they have a fail rate. Now, we can argue what the fail rate is, but there's unexploded ordnance that's associated with these munitions. And they can linger on the battlefields for years and injure civilians. And it's much the same as landmines, which, by the way, are subject to prohibitive treaties in a lot of countries that depend on the United States to not be signatory to them. Why? Because they depend on the United States to do a lot of things that they don't do. Same unexploded ordnance problem is the the same problem with landmines, but we need them on the ground in, for example, the DMZ and the Korean Peninsula. We aren't signatory to this treaty because we may have to use them at a certain point. The British, the French, I don't know if they have that problem. Um, 
is this a useful tool on the battlefields of Ukraine? I can't say one way or the other. They're valuable for clearing trenches, uh, and that's of much use now. But the Ukrainians wouldn't be in this position if the Biden administration had assented to sending them fixed-wing aircraft in order to to have a combined arms counteroffensive, which they lack right now. But the Biden administration is now inviting a lot of moral opprobrium that they're very sensitive to from Western European quarters. Democrats in particular are very sensitive to those criticisms, but they're opening themselves up to that criticism now because of decisions they made earlier that I don't think are particularly defensible. So the administration's approach here it's kind of inscrutable and doesn't really make a lot of strategic sense. It's very improvisatory. And I think, frankly, they're improvising their way through this conflict. Let me and you can tell they're very uncomfortable with it. So let me uh, just take what you said. And if, if I were to uh, take that and try and understand it. If the Biden administration had been serious about helping Ukraine stop Russia, they would have given them them all of this ex- uh, over a year ago. But they decided then it wasn't OK. And now they decided it is OK. And that's creating them a lot of heartache because they seem to have changed their mind about how you approach this. So the question is, why did they change their mind? First of all, do I have it right as you stated it? And secondly, why did they change their mind? A, I think you have it right. And B, I don't know, but I would speculate, and I think it's hard to avoid speculating, that the Biden administration is is uncomfortable with the trajectory of A, this war, and B, the counteroffensive, as it's been unfolding with very, very slow progress uh, in areas of this country that are very heavily mined, that are fortified with some of the most deep strategic fortifications that we've seen on European soil since World War II. And it's been slow going for the Ukrainians. And if they think that this can shake this up, maybe they think that's a valuable enterprise because we're heading into an election cycle. And this is going to be a difficult issue for them. Talking to Noah Rothman of National Review, nationalreview.com. In our conversations, and we have discussed this plenty over the past year, the conversation constantly comes back to Biden policy, Biden position, and the idea of what is winning what is success in all of this and of course we argue success is stopping uh, the russian invasion stopping putin putting an, an end to it if we now think that the ukrainians can't keep up and therefore they need this need that need the other well how many things are they going to need and in how many ways is the u.s going to say yes the maybe better said, what's the red line for the U.S.? Is it actual troops? Is it something else? When does the United States say to Ukraine, you haven't gotten it done yet? Sorry, we're out. Well, uh, first of all, I think we under we overestimate our capacity to influence either of the combatants on the battlefield. Uh, whether our support is provided or not, the fighting doesn't um, the condition that would pre- follow if, for example, the West were to just pull out of this, out of our support for Ukraine, it wouldn't stop the fighting. It would just result in more Ukrainian casualties, and it would push the fighting, if ever, closer to NATO borders. And that's the primary consideration for uh, Washington. Joe, Biden's, Joe Biden has to balance the considerations on the battlefield, sure. But his biggest problem is keeping all of NATO's 31 members in the same tent. And there are very mixed minds on this conflict. Um, Western Europeans may be a little less gung-ho than Eastern Europeans. Uh, Eastern Europeans uh, of uh, Romania, Bulgaria, the Baltic states, they 
and in NATO. They want this conflict to be prosecuted with no holds barred. And they can go their own way. They can go rogue and thereby jeopardize every member of the alliance. So Joe Biden has a difficult balancing act here to perform. And I don't think it's really incumbent on him to be able to say, well, we're just pulling out now because you haven't met some sort of arbitrary uh, uh, level of, uh, of territories uh, reclaimed over the course of a certain period of time. We just simply can't establish those distinctions. Those distinctions would be erased, and we would have to go back on them and look foolish in the process. So in that sense, I'm sympathetic to the Biden administration. That's the only one sympathetic to the Biden administration. Otherwise, their behavior has been uh, really improvisatory and short-sighted. This all has to do, again, with what's the plan. You've got Vladimir Zelensky, who's slapping NATO around. Why haven't we been invited to join yet? Exactly how long are you going to wait? What's wrong with you people? You heard uh, Secretary Anthony Blinken saying, you know, the door is uh, open and there's good progress. Zelensky doing himself any favors here? Well, I don't think he has anything else that he can say. Of course he wants NATO membership. He wants to be invited yesterday, and he wants ascension yesterday. I mean, that's going to be Ukraine's position, and it was Ukraine's position prior to Zelensky's ascension to that role. That was the Poroshenko government's position, too. Um, What I heard from Secretary Blinken, there was a lot of diplomatic speak for nothing at all. Uh, If you followed uh, Ukraine's ascension path over the course of the last 20 years, it looks exactly like it looked in August of 2008 in Bucharest summit at which point uh, there was a MAP, MAP, Ascension Plan for Ukraine, in place. And everything was going according to plan. And every, you know, every intention, it was an open door then, too, right? But the Ascension, the the criterion for Ascension were never going to be met. It was an an option that Ukraine couldn't exercise. Everybody was simply on on the same page saying, yeah, in theory, in sentiment, we like Ascension. But there are a bunch of criteria that you're not going to meet which is why Zelensky is very, very frustrated, saying, I want membership yesterday, and I want a a timeline, and I want firm criteria that we can meet. And he's very mad. And then the people who don't want NATO expanded are also very mad, because they think that this is an overextension of NATO's commitments. And what it is is nothing. It's no different from the conditions that have prevailed since the summer of 2008. At least least that's how I view it. Let's take a look at Russia's point of view just for a moment. Russia didn't want Ukraine to be a part of NATO in any way, shape, or form. They didn't want Ukraine to have this option. They didn't want NATO again on their border. And they were willing to fight to ensure it didn't happen. Now Finland is a NATO member, Sweden's a NATO member, and Ukraine's on the doorstep. How is that not looked upon by Russian leadership and Russian oligarchs as a complete and total failure from Vladimir Putin in this incursion, in this invasion of Ukraine? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the idea that NATO's ascent, or Ukraine's ascension to NATO was some sort of existential threat for Russia was entirely pretextual. That's why they don't, they're not reacting as though it's an existential threat when the NATO border on their actual border expands by 5,000 kilometers. Because it was never the point. It was always a pretext designed to justify a land grab, the subsumation of Ukraine and its people into the Russian Federation by any means necessary. It was never about NATO, because as I said in the prior segment, NATO ascension for Ukraine and Georgia, by the way, was halted in 2008, stalled perpetually, has not advanced beyond that point. Everybody watches this closely knows that, especially the Kremlin. So when they see NATO expansion, 
They don't react to it because NATO is a defensive alliance and they behave defensively. And Moscow knows that and understands that. And they also understand that Ukraine's ascension is in the far off future. It is not a, a, a near term possibility or even medium term possibility. It was always a pretext. And anybody who lent it great credence advanced the Kremlin's narratives. We spoke uh, the other week uh, with uh, Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army, about this quote-unquote coup attempt that took place with Prigozhin and, and the Wagner PMC, that private military company. And now, where is Wagner? Uh, not Wagner. Where is uh, Prigozhin, uh, you know, the leader here? Where, where, where is he? What's happening? Is his life in, in, in danger? What took place? And, and what um, Major Lyons said is, first, th- this wasn't a coup. It was a mutiny. Uh, and and secondly, there's no way to see this as Putin as specifically weaker amongst his people and things being weaker involving Ukraine because they still have bodies to throw uh, at the issue. And there doesn't seem to be a place where Putin really leaves without some kind of land. He gets the Donbass. He gets something. It has to happen. In your view of what happened, would you call it a coup or a mutiny or or something else that took place when Prigozhin led these troops towards Moscow and then inexplicably decided to turn around? And where is Putin today? Not physically. I'm talking about in the leadership capacity of Russia. Is it as concrete as ever? Or is this a fluid, fluid kind of moment? Those are a lot of questions. Um, I'll try to take them as I remember them. Uh, I never called it a coup. It was always a mutiny or a rebellion, if you prefer. Indeed, in my view, arguably, but in my view, the most successful rebellion, the armed rebellion against the Russian government since 1921 and the Kronstadt sailors. Um, And it was only possible to dissolve it and defuse it because Vladimir Putin was not in the crosshairs of Prigozhin or the Wagner military. They were always, they wanted personnel changes and, and uh, in the Ministry of Defense. That was their stated objective. That's how they managed to defuse it, because Putin himself was off the table. Is Putin less, slightly less position, better positioned among, uh, within his particular regime? I, don't, I, I stress not the Russian polity, because the Russian polity is not a responsive democracy. I wouldn't be so sure. Um, the rewards that have been granted to the Wagner group as a result of this rebellion, they were supposed to be folded into the Russian Ministry of Defense. That was the predicate for, for this rebellion in the first place. And Prigozhin apparently gets to keep his head. Uh, the Wagner military group gets to keep their possessions abroad, specifically in the Middle East and Africa, which is very lucrative for them and the Russian government. And Prigozhin and the Wagner group aren't the only private military company that can marshal 30,000 30, troops and, and demonstrate the will to march on Moscow and get what they want. I mean, it's a precedent that's really hard to unset. And it's a dangerous one, especially in a country that, I mean, this is basically a medieval resolution to this conflict. You bought him off with a fiefdom in, uh, in the far abroad and in a, in a, a military base in, in Belarus. It's like a, it couldn't be more medieval. So this is the society we're talking about. And if that is the solution to political conflict, I don't know why you wouldn't think that you could raise another private military, say, in Chechnya to date your will to impose on Moscow something akin to an existential crisis and get what you want. It's, it's totally foreseeable. So position today than he was last month, a month ago, rather, two months ago. I don't know. And I'd be hesitant to say he is. 
Noah Rothman is his name. Find his work at National Review, nationalreview.com. Noah, I always appreciate, appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. Threads is from the people over there at the Facebooks. Meta, as they call themselves. It's a competitor to Twitter. They already have 100 million users, which has the left super excited that, oh, it's going to be the end of Twitter. Threads is the future. Who would use Twitter anyway? Watch what happens as the left takes what Threads is and says, okay, this is the site that we grab from. And when we show everybody's you know, ha- social media handles, we show the Threads handle, not the Twitter handle. And we take the story from Threads and not from Twitter. And here's what Congressman so-and-so said on Threads. And the left decides that Threads is the future. And now they can say, you see, this is why the social media, you know, Apple really shouldn't allow Twitter. I mean, they allow so much hate on their platform. You know, uh, Elon Musk is borderline white supremacist. So you got to get rid of that. When the right wanted to create platforms like Parler, the left said, no, you can't do that. First, the left said, well, create your own. And the right did. And then the left said, you can't do that. Then Elon Musk, who's not on the right, bought Twitter and actually allowed people to talk. And now the left has said, nope, we can't have that either. That's what's happening. Watch it. And there is going to be a summit put together. Is this by the blaze? It's going to be a presidential forum that's taking place. It's this week. It's this. It's, it's on Friday. Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, Tim Scott, Mike Pence, all presidential candidates. And the host of this presidential forum, Tucker Carlson. Well, if the blaze was looking for a way to get people to notice, not bad. Not bad. Meanwhile, Megan Rapino hates women. Oh, she hates women. I have a theory. I'll share. This is Tony Katz today. Find us online at TonyKatz.com.